The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Wall Street closes lower after indices hit fresh all-time highs after Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell delays a vote on improved stimulus checks. The U.S. reports its first case of the highly contagious COVID variant discovered in the U.K. as President-elect Biden warns the country is falling behind on vaccines and paints a bleak picture for the coming period. Next few weeks and months are going to be very tough, very tough period for our nation maybe the toughest during this entire pandemic. Intel shares close higher after activist investor ThirdPoint urges the chipmaker to explore strategic alternatives amid a loss in market share. And Spanish consolidation. The boards of Unicaja and Liberbank approved their banking merger, creating the country's fifth largest domestic lender. All right. Good morning, everybody. Well, we are getting some major news out of the UK just a few minutes before the show started. And that is that the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine has now actually formally been approved for use. Uh, So let me just run you through some of the headlines that that we are getting here. So we're getting some commentary from AstraZeneca saying that they are working with the UK government to start administering the first vaccinations in the beginning of the year. Uh, Regulatory interactions will continue around the world for next approval. So we've got the approvals now in the UK, but the discussions will be continuing with the rest of the world uh, vis-a-vis broadening it out uh, to uh, more countries internationally. AstraZeneca says it aims to supply millions of doses in Q1 as part of an agreement with the government to to supply up to 100 million doses in total, that is for the UK. So a significant number of uh, inoculations have already been pre-ordered for the UK. Authorization recommends two doses administered with an interval of between four and 12 weeks. So similar to all of the other vaccinations on the market, we know that the AstraZeneca vaccination is also a two dosage regime. And here they're saying that there will be an interval of anything between four and 12 weeks when giving out those doses. And they have said additional safety and efficiency data for the vaccine will continue to accumulate from clinical trials. They're also seeking emergency use listing from the WHO for an accelerated pathway to the vaccine availability in low and middle income countries. So really big news here. And as we've been talking with Juliana, we'll be be catching up with her shortly. Uh, This one is really groundbreaking as far as the international rollout of a vaccine goes. It is cheaper to produce and much easier to store. So those things combined together make it a much more accessible vaccine for the world. And in fact, when we spoke to the editor-in-chief of The Lancet a few weeks ago, he did call this vaccine the vaccine for the world. So really a good news there, and uh, especially for the UK as well. You can see AstraZeneca stock yesterday closed up 3.3%. There had been anticipation that this uh, approval would be coming. And, uh, and here we have it. So uh, starting off the day uh, with some positive news uh, for the UK and for the world. Let's bring in our first guest, Bob Parker, Investment Committee member from Coalfest Wealth Management. Uh, Bob, well, I actually want to start off asking you about 
all in all, the whole that coronavirus situation that the world uh, has found itself in this year, when I think about it, the world is pretty much divided into two axes. You've got those countries that were able to deal with the pandemic pretty early and economically are in a better shape now. And then you've got the rest of the world, and I very much put UK in that bucket, UK, Europe, and even US, who are still faced with mounting cases on a daily, on a daily basis, rising number of hospitalizations, and an accompanying weakness in the economy. So when you think about those two axes as an investor, does that incentivize you to steer clear of the economies and the countries that are str still struggling with the coronavirus pandemic as of now? Um, I think looking back over 2020, that certainly has been a theme. And you know, if one looks at most of the Asian countries and also New Zealand, um, you know, Asia was very quick to deal with the uh, coronavirus. And if you look at actually the data uh, during you know, November and December on new cases and fatalities, uh, no, the numbers are very low in Asia. Obviously, the one exception to that is India, which has been struggling for most of the year in dealing with the uh, coronavirus. Um, but I think your comment on, you know, the United States, the UK, the European Union is absolutely correct. Um, you know, the authorities in those countries and you no know, one can also include countries, I mentioned India, but also Brazil. Um, you know, those governments have been slow to deal with the virus. Um, and there has been obviously quite a significant catch-up effect. Now, as an investor, I think it's quite interesting to note that this year, uh, there have been two sort of themes of outperformance in global equity markets. Uh, the first has obviously been the tech sector. And if you just look at, you know, year-to-date performance of the NASDAQ versus the S&P, uh, you know, you've got a dramatic difference in uh, investment performance. The second, obviously, area of outperformance um, has been Asia. So there has been actually a good correlation between um, government's ability and speed to deal with the virus um, and what has happened in their capital markets. Plus, obviously, if one looks at it sector by sector, um, no, there have been clear areas um, which have benefited um, from what has happened in 2020, and the tech sector obviously stands out. Right. But to pick up on that and looking forward, Bob, um, you mentioned that tech, we've seen a big outperformance of tech. We've also seen a big outperformance of uh, some of the Asian tech markets as well. Given the situation that we're in right now in Europe, and again, rising hospitalizations, there's still going to be a bit of a delay in terms of when these vaccines uh, get to a much broader rollout for the a broader percentage of the population. So we're still going to be facing these heavy economic restrictions and lockdowns for the next couple of months. Does that mean that at least in the first quarter of the year, we might see a continuation of the theme that played out in 2020, which is that tech sector and probably Asia are, are going to outperform, at least in the short term? Well, I think you know, if one looks back uh, at 2020, you know, there was this very clear theme that investors, you know, particularly if one looks back at you know, what happened in late February and March, uh, you know, investors were sort of very concerned as to how um, you know, the virus was going to be curtailed. Um, if you look at the situation in November, we obviously had very strong equity markets. We had you know, a recovery in those sectors which would benefit from 
a recovery in economic growth and very strong equity markets in November. And in fact, the data for December uh, still looks very robust in global equity markets. Um, and you know, that has been driven by positive expectations on vaccines rolled out. Um, and obviously, the news that we've got today on AstraZeneca is very positive, And I'm assuming uh, that AstraZeneca will get approvals from you know, a number of other major economies in over you know, the next month or two. But if one looks at the situation in the first quarter, um, I think you know, I would just highlight uh, the caution that came out of the European Central Bank in their, in their last meeting. Uh, which is they're saying, look, growth in the fourth quarter probably contracted. Uh, in the first quarter of uh, 2021, uh, growth will struggle because we're in this sort of almost tug of war at the moment, whereby you're absolutely right, the data out of the States and out of Europe uh, on new cases uh, on fatalities remains very alarming indeed. But, you know, there is that positive factor that the vaccines are being rolled out. And, you know, just in case of AstraZeneca, uh, there are reports that, you know, they should be able to produce over 3 billion vaccine doses in 2021. So, you know, the data on the vaccine is, is obviously a very positive step. But in January and February, um, you know, we're, it's going to take time for these vaccination programs to be implemented. And it's tricky. I mean, even as a as a consumer, uh, to distinguish between the short term, which is still pretty bleak, and then the medium term, which is beginning to look a lot more optimistic, especially with the rollout of of these latest vaccines. Uh, I just want to turn it to the longer term economic damage from the year of the pandemic. Uh, most economic uh, forecasts do predict that a, a bulk of these economies will return back to growth or at least trend growth by the end of 2021 or possibly the beginning of 2022. But that might eclipse the bigger picture, which is that in some cases there will be long-term economic damage sustained on many of these economies. Uh, how do you think about that when you think about you know, the medium-term outlook and where you want to put your money? Well, I think uh, sort of two things. First of all, on the growth data, um, you know, the data coming out of Asia shows sustained recovery. And I think that will continue through 2021. And, you know, the IMF, I think correctly, uh, is forecasting growth in China uh, in 2021 of uh, 8%, India uh, above 8%. Um, I think the first quarter, as we discussed, is going to be somewhat of a struggle for the states uh, and for Europe. Um, but as we go into the second quarter of 2021, I think that growth uh, will accelerate uh, in the EU and uh, and in the United States. And if anything, uh, the forecasts from the Fed and the ECB may actually be too pessimistic for the year. Now, coming back to your question, obviously, there is some long-term damage. Um, and, you know, areas which have been hit very badly indeed are obviously leisure, hospitality, uh, travel, tourism, uh, the aviation industry. Uh, now, if you look at, for example, the data uh, on sort of passengers going through European and US airports at the moment, you know, year on year, they are down very dramatically indeed. Uh, you know, one area um, which I would also highlight where there has been damage, and which I think the damage is going to be very long term, is in the real estate sector. Um, and, you know, you have to ask the question, uh, yes, there will be some um, sort of going back to working in the office, but I actually seriously doubt whether office occupancy is going to return quickly to the levels that we had in 2019. So commercial real estate, I think, is a problem. Also, um, retail real estate, um, I think, is a big uh, issue. If you just look at the data in the UK, 
you know, online shopping has now accelerated to 30 percent um, of retail sales. And I think that is very much a long term theme. So, you know, the corona I think in the tech sector and in consumer behavior uh, and in consumer spending actually has accelerated a lot of longer term trends. And that is, I think, has negative implications for the real estate market. I also question whether the uh, the tourism and the aviation markets are going to come back quickly. And if you talk to you know most of uh, the major airlines, they're very pessimistic about a rapid return to normality. Well, indeed, I mean, that's going to be a function of the vaccine rollout, isn't it? And also the, the vaccine take up, how quickly people actually want to get inoculated and you know, they, they push towards uh, herd immunity. On a slightly different tact, again, looking back at 2020, uh, one of the other remarkable features of this year was the sheer amount of fiscal and monetary support we got, both from the central banks and also from governments. If you look at government's deficits and, and spending forecasts, even going into 2021, you're looking at something like a 10% deficit for the US, 5% for the Eurozone, 8% in the UK. I mean, these numbers are, are mind boggling. And that is also accompanied by a big jump upwards in debt to GDP. When do investors start worrying about that, do you think? Um, I think the answer to that question is not yet. Um, and you know, if one looks at the example of uh, Japan, you know, Japanese debt to GDP is now over uh, 250%. And, you know, it's been, you know, significantly above 200% for many years indeed. Now, the reason why I say let's not worry about it yet is because obviously we've got the backstop of central banks uh, buying government debt. And, you know, again, a, uh, a good example is Japan, where, you know, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet um, is now 130%. Uh, of Japanese GDP. Um, you know, we've seen uh, a very significant expansion uh, this year uh, in the Fed's balance sheet and in the ECB's balance sheet. Now, for example, the Fed balance sheet's gone from just over $4 trillion, uh, to $7.3 US dollars. So I think first point is we've got that central bank backstop. Uh, the second point is obviously that nominal and real yields um, are negative. Um, and you know, two extreme examples here in Europe are you know, the Bund market in Germany and the Swiss government bond market, where we as investors you know, have to pay the German and Swiss governments uh, for the privilege of buying their debt. And you know, German Bund yields you know, still at around minus uh, 60 basis points and minus 50 basis points approximately for us for Swiss debt. Um, I think the other factor, of course, is that the maturities of the debt um, governments have deliberately lengthened those maturities. And I think one would be very worried indeed uh, if a lot of this new debt was you know, in one or two year maturities. But if it's in you know, 10, 20, 30 year maturities, then that is not a short term issue. Now, obviously, you know, at some stage, and you know, that may well be 2022, 2023, uh, we're going to have a situation where these very easy monetary policies and quantitative easing programs are progressively rolled back. Um, and we may well have a situation where bond yields are, are higher, particularly um, if investors become worried about uh, rising inflation, which is not a short term problem, but it certainly could be a problem um, over the next two to three years. So I, the answer to your question is that, uh, yes, the debt numbers look alarming, but I don't think that's going to be a problem in 2021. But I think we may be having a very different conversation in two to three years' time. 
Yeah, I mean, especially with uh, central banks not looking to hike interest rates anytime soon. Um, Bob, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to pick up the conversation with you, particularly uh, about inflation and the inflation outlook. So uh, Bob Parker from Coolfest uh, West Wealth Management will stay with us on the line. I also just want to take you to some news from the U.S., uh, and that is that the U.S. have now detected the first known case of the U.K.'s highly contagious COVID variant in Colorado. This, as President-elect Joe Biden has warned the country, may have to wait until March for a recovery from the pandemic. Biden criticized the Trump administration's handling of the vaccine rollout. So Trump administration's plan to distribute vaccines is falling behind, far behind. We're grateful to the companies, the doctors, the scientists, the researchers, the clinical trial participants, and Operation Warp Speed for developing the vaccines quickly. But as I long feared and warned, the effort to distribute and administer the vaccine is not progressing as it should. A few weeks ago, the Trump administration suggested that 20 million Americans could be vaccinated by the end of December. With only a few days left in December, we've only vaccinated a few million so far. And the pace of the vaccination program is moving now, uh, as it, if it continues to move as it is now. It's going to take years, not months, to vaccinate the American people. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell delays a vote on new stimulus paychecks, linking its passing to a Trump-backed defense bill. More on that particular topic in just a few moments. We'll be right back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to the show. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has blocked an attempt by Democrats to pass a bill that would have raised direct payments to Americans to $2,000. McConnell later introduced a bill that would see up the size of the checks, but would also repeal Section 230. This after a tweet by President Trump urging the Senate to vote on both issues. NBC's Susan McGinnis filed this report. The Senate will come to order. On the Senate floor today, Democrats trying to force Republicans to pass a bill raising COVID relief payments for Americans from $600 to $2,000. The fastest way to get money into Americans' pockets is to send some of their tax dollars right back from where they came. The effort blocked by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Object. McConnell breaking with a growing number of GOP members and with President Trump, who earlier today called on Republicans to deliver the $2,000 payments. As the issue pits the president against some in his own party, it also unites congressional Democrats and the incoming administration with him. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris today joining President-elect Joe Biden signaling support for the measure. A while back, uh, uh, I recommended that folks receive a $2,000 check. And so I would urge Mitch McConnell to put my bill on the floor for a vote. Meanwhile, the Senate plans a vote tomorrow on overriding President Trump's veto of the critical defense spending bill. I would urge my colleagues to support this legislation one more time when we vote tomorrow. Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders now trying to link the stimulus payments with that override vote. 
working families need help now. Not next year, but right now. Sanders threatening to delay the veto override vote unless Leader McConnell allows a full vote on the increased stimulus payments, leaving struggling Americans still not knowing how much relief they'll get. For now, the administration is moving ahead with plans to begin sending out the $600 payments as soon as this week. In Washington, Susan McGinnis, NBC News. Well, let's take a look at how Wall Street closed yesterday. And slightly in the red, you can see behind me, though this uh, isn't telling you the big picture, which is that intraday, we did yet again reach record highs for all of these U.S. stock market indices. No surprise there. They keep going from strength to strength. But we are beginning to see a little bit of profit taking. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting. A comment from our colleague in the U.S., Mike Santoli, remarked that out of the top 50 best performing stocks in the S&P 500, we saw underperformance out of about 44, 45 of them, which tells you that uh, we are at least seeing beginning beginning of signs of profit taking as we head to the last couple of days of the trading year. But this is the picture for these U.S. indices at the close yesterday. The Dow at just a two-tenths of a percentage point softer. S&P about two-tenths of a percentage point weaker as well. And then the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy index, up more than 40% for the year, down about four-tenths of a percentage point as well. So a little bit of profit taking into the close. And of course, all eyes on what happens with that fiscal stimulus package, which was met with a lot of relief yesterday in trading. As for Asian markets, well, the picture there was uh, slightly more positive, And we've got the uh, Chinese indices staging a bit of a comeback. Remember, at the beginning of the week, we're very much focused on the uh, tech sector there, and particularly Beijing going after Alibaba for uh, anti-competitive uh, business. And so uh, that led to a bit of a sell-off in those particular parts of the market earlier on in the week. We did see a rebound yesterday. Shanghai up more than 1%. Hang Seng, also in Hong Kong, up a decent amount as well, 1.7%. And Nikkei coming off its 30-year record highs, uh, down about half a percentage point. But still, very strong performance from Asian equities into the end of the year as well. As for European futures, well, let me just remind you that uh, just before the uh, start of the show, at uh, about one minute to seven, we heard that the UK have now formally given approval for the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine rollout. That obviously is very good news not just for the UK, which has secured 100 million doses, but for the rest of the world. And there are reports that there are up to two to three billion doses that will be made available for uh, lower income countries. So very positive news coming out in the morning. FTSE futures, you can see, seen uh, about to open, well, looking to open about a tenth of a percentage point higher. DAX and CAC 40 relatively flat, I would say, around uh, the flat line. All right, let's get back out to Bob Parker from uh, Quilves uh, Wealth Management. And Bob, we finished off the earlier section talking about, well, the the possibility of inflation. And uh, the more people I speak to this year uh, tell me that with the vaccine rollout in 2021, we could also see a huge pent-up demand and a dwindling down of some of the household savings that were built up in 2020 that could spur on inflation. Where do you stand on that debate? Um, I think you've got to make a very clear distinction between headline inflation and core inflation. And no, just two observations on headline inflation, which is the base effect of commodity price movements. And you know, let's not forget that uh, you know, with North Sea Brent at the moment trading above fifty dollars per barrel uh, in April, um, you know, Brent was trading at twenty dollars a barrel, and WTI was obviously in negative territory. 
So in the second quarter of this year, you know, I'm assuming that uh, Brent continues to trade sort of between fifty and sixty dollars a barrel. Uh, you know, we're going to have quite a significant jump in headline inflation um, from that rise in energy costs. Um, a second you know, negative factor for headline inflation is what's been happening with uh, soft commodities. And uh, I would you know, just look at corn prices. You know, corn prices in the last couple of months have absolutely rocketed. You know, we're now talking of you know, well over $460 per bushel. Uh, if we go back just to last summer, you know, we were down at around uh, 320 So again, you know, that is going to have a, uh, a baseline effect on headline inflation um, around the middle of uh, 2021. So I think that let's not be surprised if those CPI numbers, which in a number of countries today, like the European Union, like China, like Japan, are negative year on year, uh, that we see quite a major adjustment there. Now, obviously, central banks don't focus on headline inflation numbers. They focus on core inflation numbers, X, food and energy. Um, and there, I think you know, it's going to take some time for inflation to come back. Um, and you know the key question is, you know, to what extent the global economy starts to move back to working at full capacity. Now, I'm assuming that's going to happen in the second half of the year. So, now I think as we go into the second half of 2021, headline inflation higher, core inflation edging up. But I think that process um, is going to be slow. Just coming back to your comment. Um, about you know, pent-up demand, the savings numbers um, obviously at the moment are very high. Uh, if we look at the last quarter, uh, European savings jumped quarter on quarter by about 25%. Uh, US savings ratio, which historically has averaged around 4%, is currently around 15%. So you know, one of the reasons why I think sort of really moving into the second quarter of 2021 that the economy starts to really re-accelerate uh, in Europe and uh, the States after, you know, a difficult January and February, one of the reasons is the consumer demand will increase. Uh, down the road towards the end of 2021, that is going to have inflationary consequences. Uh, but to your point, it's probably going to affect headline inflation and central banks tend to look through that. So to tie it all back together, uh, markets and these valuations can, can be sustained so long as central banks don't start hinting at tightening. And that's really where we're at today. And um, that brings me to my next point, which is something that people have been flagging a lot, which is the fact that stock markets continue to make record highs uh, day after day despite what's happening on the ground, despite the increased number of hospitalizations, despite economic activity slowing down for the quarter. I mean, what do you make of this disparity, Bob? And have central banks created this phenomenon in the market because they have thrown so much liquidity at, at dealing with the pandemic crisis that uh, they've lost whack? They've, they've, they're, they're completely out of whack with what's going on in financial markets now. Well, investors obviously face a rather difficult choice at the moment, whereby, you know, as you correctly say, in many markets, and particularly the, you know, the US and Chinese uh, tech sectors, we're looking at very stretched valuations. Um, you know, if we look at the PE on uh, the S&P, you know, we're close to 25. Um, and, you know, investors are struggling with whether those valuations can be sustained or not. Uh, you know, conversely, as we mentioned earlier, um, if you look at most fixed income markets, uh, real and nominal yields are negative. And, you know, today, 
for example, there is still close to around 18 trillion US dollars of investment grade debt, um, which is, you know, has got a negative yield. So it's very difficult to put forward a case uh, for fixed income investment, and therefore almost by default, uh, investors are going to be pushed into uh, global equity markets. Now, I do think that, that we're going to be seeing some changes. Um, anyway, the first change is that I think we're going to move um, away from the tech sector, which obviously has outperformed very dramatically, into sectors which benefit from that economic growth recovery. And that could well be consumer sectors, uh, it could be industrials. Um, you know, for example, if you look at Asia, uh, the industrial sectors actually have very modest price earnings ratios. Um, if we look at Europe, which has underperformed dramatically this year relative to the states and relative to Asia, you know, after what has been a catastrophic year for corporate earnings in Europe, um, no, next year, most projections, and I think they're right, show corporate earnings growth well above 40% in Europe. So we could actually have something next year whereby, you know, in contrast to previous years, Europe actually starts to outperform relative to the states. And I, I would also say I think the outperformance in Asia will continue. Um, and, you know, if we look at, you know, not just uh, non-Japan Asia, but also look at Japan, where, you know, corporate earnings growth next year, you know, could be in excess of 35%. So, uh, I think it's going to be a year of Europe and, and, and Asia really dominating global equity markets. And now, are we going to have a major reversal in global equity markets? Uh, I think not. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.